It's May 27th, 2018, and this is episode 367 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. On today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, I'm here with Stephanie Murphy. Hello. And special guest Bill Barheit, founder and CEO of Abra. Bill, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Happy to be here. So, Bill, it's been a long time since we've actually talked with a wallet maker. And specifically, the reason why I wanted to have you on is to talk about the challenges and successes so far in tackling cross-border remittances outside of the first world area. But as I was doing a little bit of research for this episode, I found your history was pretty darn long for the world of blockchain and quite interesting in terms of the variety and amount of things that you've done over the last number of years and been involved with. Can you kick off the conversation by talking about how you got your start in technology and share a little bit of the winding path that led you to start Abra in 2014? Sure. So I've been involved in tech and and internet tech as long as you could, pretty much. I mean, at least for my age, I started working at NASA Ames was the peering point for the internet for May West back in around 1989, 1990. Before that, I was with the CIA and worked in cryptography-related projects for secure messaging. So I've been involved in cryptography since my teens, basically. Left the government for a very short stint where I worked on Wall Street at Goldman Sachs in New York. And that was really instrumental for me because it gave me financial background that I didn't have. I learned about fixed income products and instruments and how financial markets work and kind of got an MBA in finance, but on a trading floor, which was a lot of fun, but it really wasn't my calling. So I ended up going back to tech and I ended up at Netscape and middle of the dot-com boom, got back into consumer internet, but also with a heavy emphasis on still on security and information security. I was part of the team that uh, worked on X509 client certificates. We also worked obviously on the creation of SSL at Netscape in those days. And so I worked on some of the very first certificate authority deployments for our requirements in the browser to have a root authority model distributed worldwide. I also worked on a lot of early banking deployments. We had a lot of issues in the browser days where we couldn't export strong crypto, if that means anything to you. The original browsers were basically restricted under weapons-grade cryptography, commerce department's export controls. And it created a lot of problems for us in in deploying kind of 1.0 internet banking and worked on ways to help international, particularly European banks around those problems. But banks all over the world really got into consumer internet and payments and how, uh, you know, mobile banking works back in those days. And it really led to kind of the second half of my career, which has been very focused on wallet technology, uh, transaction technology for consumers, mobile banking, financial inclusion in particular, the last 10 years. But I think I bring a unique perspective on how the technology works, how consumer internet works, how consumer adoption of technologies work into kind of a unique perspective that's taken me, unfortunately, decades to figure out. But here I am. So, Bill, that's a very interesting background. So how did you first hear about Bitcoin and what got you inspired to start a company that worked with Bitcoin? Yeah, it's a good question. My last company, Boom Financial, which is now part of Digicel, the wireless carrier, it's their mobile money product. It was a company that I had started a little over 10 years ago now, probably about 12 years ago, specifically to work on financial inclusion projects. But it was very bank centric, meaning every time we deployed Boom into a new market, we had to have local banking partners. And it was a nightmare, both from a partner management perspective, as well as a regulatory perspective. And, and I had read the, the Bitcoin white paper maybe three months or four months after 
Satoshi had posted it on the bulletin boards. And I was fascinated by it. I mean, it was so early. You could actually mine on a laptop, which I did for a couple of months in, in, in those days. And just getting everything to compile, and it was just a nightmare. So I, I immediately recognized that if he had solved the double spend problem, which is something they'd been talking about with friends going all the way back to my Netscape days, that that was really interesting. Just in and of itself, period, full stop. If you, you know, solving the double spend problem in and of itself was, you know, a massive win for mankind. But I didn't really see how, in the short term, it would get adoption as a payment system, just given the complexities of consumer adoption and liquidity and the fact that it wasn't worth anything and et cetera, et cetera. At the same time, I was working on Boom and we were in the process of Digicel taking it over. And I was really kind of regrouping for myself, what's next and how can I really solve the problems that I wasn't able to solve with Boom? Meaning how can I deploy a single mobile wallet system worldwide that every single smartphone in the world can run in order to do payments, share money at global scale? And I realized from my first time around that there's no way to do that inside the traditional banking system because there's simply too many roadblocks. But I also believed that in the short term, people were not going to adopt a new currency, at least not on the surface. And so how could I actually marry the two worlds became my thesis, meaning how could I take the best of what Bitcoin was offering on the surface, which was a peer-to-peer -peer, trustless decentralized model that didn't require any trusted third party to solve the double spend problem with this idea of financial inclusion. And that led to the idea for ABRA, ABRA, a better remittance app, which and the idea was, was that it was going to be a global banking system with no centralized banks. And that eventually it would offer payments, money transfer, investment products, lending, et cetera, et cetera. And slowly we're moving towards fulfilling that vision. The cornerstone tech of that was basically taking the idea of multisig, which was still new at the time, because it was an addition to Bitcoin after Bitcoin was created, to create, today you might call it a stable coin, but effectively a synthetic currency. A synthetic currency would say, okay, I'm going to use Bitcoin to allow people to hold dollars, euros, pesos, yen on a smartphone without actually having to hold dollars, pesos, yen in a bank. Now, eventually, we believe and, and hope that some people might be interested in using Bitcoin as the actual currency for the payment transaction. And, and remember, at the time when we started Abra, the, the, the global awareness for Bitcoin was pretty much zero. And so the idea was to have a segue to be able to give people something that they can start with that smells like real money and, and kind of a real global version of a Venmo, and then segue that over time into something that would look more like Bitcoin once the awareness for that took off. But I just gave you one sliver of the problem that we had to solve, which was how do you store money on a phone without actually using banks, right? But that's just part one. Part two is, well, how do you have a globally liquid system? So if I'm sending money from the US to Mexico, how do I get the money into the system? Then how do I get the money out of the system, right? And, and so then you have all of the problems associated with money transfer in terms of consumer awareness and adoption. Remittances is a very cash-driven business, right? People don't like stored value systems for traditional remittances. Now, we probably all use products like Venmo or other stored value wallets, but that's not how remittances work. Remittances basically originate from a bank account and end with cash in a hand, right? Usually from a window somewhere. And changing that behavior is extremely difficult. 
And that's one of the things that we discovered at Abra. I discovered it at Boom, but even more so at Abra because of the complexities of integrating crypto and smartphone apps and all that into the equation. So the theory on how we were going to solve those problems was, one, we were going to manage liquidity by integrating with exchanges all over the world. And that's something that we're actually doing still. And we would basically leverage their liquidity to move money in and out of the Abra app. Even though in the very early days of Abra, most of the exchanges weren't very liquid, by the way, in case you know people forget where we were, where we were here a couple of years ago. Two, that we would have to build a system to hedge away the risk on these contracts. And so the consumer is basically getting a multi-sig contract that acts like a synthetic CFD contract for difference. And in English, what that means is the value of the Bitcoin becomes pegged to whatever fiat currency the consumer chooses to hold. But Abra is acting as the counterparty to that contract, which means that if Bitcoin moves against us, we could go broke. So how do we hedge away that risk? Well, we figured that out, but the solution was relatively complex, at least at the time, and the markets weren't really liquid enough to support our needs. So we had to figure out how to solve that problem, right? And then the third was, how are we gonna go out and compete with MoneyGram and Zoom and Western Union and everybody else who's spending 40, 50, 60, and now close to $100 to acquire a new customer in the remittance world. And that turned out to be the biggest problem of all. And then there was this other problem, which is, okay, how are you going to get money on and off a smartphone? There's no banks. And you know you want to basically create a cash-like user experience, particularly in the recipient markets. So we had to solve all of those problems. So everybody's talked about Bitcoin, at least in the early days of Bitcoin, being kind of a panacea for solving I'm using air quotes, the remittance problem. But the truth is, is that in order to use it correctly by today's standards to solve the remittance problem, solve every single one of those problems that I just mentioned. And we figured out, at least in theory, how to do each one of those. And we did. We went out and basically built a liquidity solution. We built a, a cash in and out solution. Um, we built uh, really slick mobile smartphone apps. And we put together a growth plan that in theory would help us acquire customers. So the reality is that the, the teller model we developed, which is a solution that would allow somebody on the ground, not dissimilar to like a local Bitcoins, but with more of a consumer friendly experience, requires massive, massive scale to work correctly. It's kind of like Uber, right? You can't launch Uber in a new city unless there's really drivers everywhere, because if people have a bad experience, they're not going to use Uber, right? And so we started deploying these tellers and realized that in order to go deep in any one geography, we needed massive scale. That's why Uber has raised so much money, by the way, right? I mean, building these driver networks is extremely expensive. And we were burning through cash, building out our teller network at, a, at an alarming rate. And I said, okay, this is not working. We can't, I can raise a billion dollars and then wait for everybody to come, or we can figure out how to get this thing to scale at, at a much smaller number in order to work. Pause for a second, Bill, because I want to just go back to something you said a little bit earlier before you started talking about building the network. I just I just wanted to, I guess, kind of acknowledge how ambitious this project was. It still is, by the way. <laughs> Wait till you hear what we're doing now. So, yeah. Yeah, of course, and still is. But I mean, I think it's really interesting that you combined elements and there were other companies in the crypto space that were doing some of these elements, but nobody was doing all of them at the same time. For example, 
I remember Coinapult had this feature called locks where they would be able to lock in the value of your wallet as either the Bitcoin value or as like a local currency. So they had that problem. Shapeshift was trying to solve the liquidity issues, I guess. Yeah, Prism was the other one, was the more recent one that they did. Yeah, with the smart contracts, that's that's a very similar in practice where you're basically betting against the house. Circle was basically trying to create something where people were going to be using Bitcoin, but they wouldn't really even know it. <laughs> they were doing a financial service that was trying to kind of go mainstream. But very bank-centric, though. Very bank-centric, yeah, exactly. And then, of course, local Bitcoins and Mycelium Local Trader and probably some others that I don't really know of were... Well, BitPesa is another one that has elements of this, which was the uh, attempts to Bitcoinize uh, M-Pesa. Mm -hmm. And all of those involved local peer-to-peer -peer kind of in-person networks. And then, of course, there was also the Satoshi Square and the just meetups where people would kind of meet up and exchange in a physical, real-world fashion. So, I mean, all of these companies had their own challenges, but you... I think correctly realized that all of these elements kind of had to be combined into one. And I just want to take a minute to kind of step back and realize like how, how interesting and how big that is. Yeah, I appreciate that. And, and that's not what we're doing. And obviously, you know, we're doing this to build a successful business. Let's be clear. And maybe this is a disadvantage. I don't know. I've been doing this for a long time, right? I'm not the typical CEO in the Bitcoin space. And I think I feel like sometimes it's an advantage and sometimes it's a disadvantage. I never have the ignorance is bliss opportunity <laughs> at this point in my life. But I also recognize that this is a hard problem, but it's a noble and an important problem, not just remittances, but financial inclusion in general. I really believe that capitalism is the tide that raises all boats. But there's two to three billion people that don't have access to what I would call traditional capitalism the way we do which is via the traditional banking system. And we can all rail against it, but the reality is that's the system that we currently live in. My feeling was, how can we finally build a system that gives everyone equal access? And that was the real driver here. And the challenge is though, that there's no really good migration path from the utopia that the crypto anarchists constantly talk about to the world that we live in today. I kind of felt like, hey, there's really an opportunity here to start to bridge those gaps but damn, to really dig in and understand the nuances of what it's going to take to drive consumer behavioral change requires really going deep on all of the problems that I mentioned before. And I still don't see any other way at scale. Because remember, even at 50 million wallets, it's a roundoff error to zero if you really think about Bitcoin adoption globally. I'm excited about it. I think at $200 billion, the asset class is here to stay. But let's be honest about where we are in terms of the evolution. I mean, it's still a roundoff error to zero. But that's a huge opportunity if somebody can step up and do it right. And that, that still remains our theory is that over time, we're going to put the pieces in place to finally make this useful for the average consumer. I use, and I know others have used this expression, if you can turn Bitcoin into TCPIP for money in the early days, it gives you a segue into Bitcoin becoming overtly the currency that people know they're using and creates, again, that natural kind of path or natural segue towards getting there. And that was the idea for Abra out of the gate was how do we create that path so that consumers are actually extrapolating massive value from this because they have a, I mean, I guess you can kind of call it a shadow banking system, but a banking system that really works for them, you know, like, like a global Venmo model. So we went out and built this initial teller network. We went out and created the synthetic dollar, the synthetic peso, et cetera, et cetera. We integrated with some exchange partners. 
Although in the early days, they didn't have the APIs we needed. So we kind of fudged things a lot to get it to work. And today, things are very different. Thank God. We battled together this kind of simple solution with a lot of pain that could do basic money transfer between the U.S. and the Philippines, for example. The truth is, is it more or less work globally, but you know, we only had liquid tellers in the U.S. and the Philippines. And then the reality hit home that, okay, as we were digging into how people acquire customers in the money transfer space, predominantly from the send market of the U.S., it's really ugly, right? My theory right now, and I've dug into this, you know, Zoom, which is now part of PayPal, I think it was about a billion dollar acquisition. I may be wrong on that. It's, it's an okay exit given where they were as a company, but I would guess that they had no choice but to sell because the cost of customer acquisition was getting out of hand. That's my theory. I'm guessing it got to the point where they were spending between 60 and $100 to acquire a customer. Okay. Now, if you have that customer for a couple of years and you know remittance economics, at least their remittance economics, it actually is a viable business. But the, the cash outlays that you're having to put up front to build that business are obviously enormous at any kind of scale. So meaning a million customers w- would cost you $100 million to acquire. And Abra, as not being an efficient business at that point, was going to be spending more than that, not less. And there was obviously no network effect in the business at that point. Now, the other theory was, was that, hey, if you could convert cash consumers to be using a stored value, even if the stored value is crypto, meaning it doesn't matter whether the stored value is in a bank or on your phone, that that could help create a person to person network effect. Because inherently, traditional cash remittances have no network effect because the recipients doesn't interact with anyone else. They simply get the cash and go about their day. But if everybody has the same wallet and is going person to person, whether it's person to person, US to Philippines, Philippines to Philippines, or Philippines back to the US, or US to the US, you get a network effect over time. That was the theory. But the two don't reconcile very well, meaning remittances and network effects. Hopefully, I don't know if that makes sense, but the two don't reconcile very well. So you get the second problem, which is, okay, You have consumer behavior, you have network effect. And then we had a third problem, which we didn't know we had because we thought we did a really good job of signing up tellers in the early days and we had thousands of them. And the truth is, is that it's not enough. You need probably hundreds of thousands in order to have real global liquidity because once you go stored value in the consumer's mind, you're competing with the ATM networks. And so even in the Philippines, you can turn around and see an ATM machine. So you can't turn around and see an average teller. So what you're saying is that if people are always taking the money out of the system at any given time that they receive it, then you don't have the stored value in the system. And so you can't build up the network effect. And so what you weren't able to accomplish was a density of tellers that would effectively replace or kind of replicate the functionality of an ATM network, which would then give people the confidence to leave money in the system until they actually needed it, at which point they go to an Abra teller and pull the money out from there. And you weren't able to achieve that density, even if you were. 100%. Yeah, okay, gotcha. I, I would say, and I would also caveat by saying not yet, right? This is not something that we've given up on. I just think that there's a better path to getting there than spending a billion dollars. And I'll get into that. But I do believe in this business dramatically. I also think that, and i go back to the original vision of Abra, that it becomes kind of a global bank where hopefully we're interoperating with lots of other wallets and other systems because some people are using pure crypto and some people are using our smart contracts or whatever. But I also think what we realized though, let me take a step back. What we realized that was working was that we had a lot of awareness for this, for all of the reasons that Stephanie laid out where people were saying, oh my God, Abra's amazing and what you're trying to do is incredible. 
But you both come from the crypto world and you know the promise of this. And people like you would be saying that, but you're also not a core user <laughs> from a remittance perspective, right? And so we always had this disparity between people who loved what we were trying to do and the ability of it and how cool the tech was and the Teller network and the reality of who our users were that we were going after and they weren't the same people and it was driving me crazy because there's no way to turn people like yourselves into evangelists if you're not going to use the product because I'm guessing the two of you don't you know, use the remittance services, right? But here's what was happening, which was interesting. We started getting emails or support tickets from users who were using Abra and, and either our tellers or the bank in system that we had in the US to say, hey, you know, this is like the easy, you guys have created the easiest app in crypto on planet earth by far. I've been using this to buy Bitcoin and just send the Bitcoin either to my external wallet or friends. Do you think you could add this, this or this? And so we dug in a little and realized that there were a whole bunch of people in the US who were into Bitcoin that actually did want to do money transfer. But at the same time, also, they did do money transfer, but they also wanted to send Bitcoin instead of fiat if they could. And the idea of people being able to receive money in fiat if I sent Bitcoin was something we hadn't considered because at the beginning, the number of Bitcoin users was so tiny, it just wasn't a business. So we said, hmm, this is interesting. So people are telling us they like the idea of buying Bitcoin with our product, even if it's just for speculation. But they also like the idea of being able to use some of that Bitcoin to send money to other people who might receive it using the peso or dollar kind of stable coin that our system offers. And those people are more tech savvy, so they might be willing to have a more tech friendly or a tech like user experience is what I meant to say with a real stored value as opposed to just getting cash in hand in the remittance world. And that actually worked a little bit. We seem to have people who were sending Bitcoin to other people in the U.S. who were receiving dollars or people in the U.S. sending Bitcoin in the Philippines who were receiving pesos. And, and that was something that nobody else in the world could do. And I think that's still a very unique feature to Abra. What was really interesting then is, is that more and more people were realizing that they could also use Abra to just buy Bitcoin without a trading experience, meaning with a very simple Venmo wallet-like experience without an order book, you know, in kind of the, the terminology that, that your audience might use. And so we started to spend a lot of time last summer with some of our early users. And it turned out that there were a lot of websites that were talking about buying crypto and recommending Abra. And we didn't actually even know it. And we started to talk to some of these people and, and, and say, hey, why are you doing this? I mean, there's exchanges out there. There's other wallets out there. And they said, yeah, but you're the only ones that come close to enabling a good buy and sell experience that doesn't actually involve being a trader. And hmm, said, okay, that's interesting. So we, we did probably a couple of hundred user interviews and dug into this and realized that we had a pretty passionate following among people who were already using Abra to basically do what I was saying. And when we listened to them, they came back and said, we end up using Abra for this, but we end up taking the money out right away because you're not doing this, that, or the other thing. And so that led to kind of a rework of the user experience to keep the basics in place of the wallet that we had before, meaning keep it super simple. You can move money between fiat currencies, but you could also move money easily between crypto and fiat currencies. So now the interesting side effect of that whole kind of synthetic dollar we created and the way we use the smart contracts was that you could actually create a synthetic anything with Abra. 
Now, we didn't realize that what we had done at first, but that's the reality of what we built. In other words, any asset on planet Earth that's liquid, I can actually give you a synthetic version of inside of our app in some way, meaning stocks, bonds, traditional fiat currency, all based upon Bitcoin or, or now Litecoin and Bitcoin based simple smart contract scripts using P2SH with Abra acting as the counterparty, but then with this unique hedging system that we had built to hedge away that counterparty risk. So we said, well, okay, it would take us a year and a day to integrate all these other blockchains that our customers are asking us for to basically get access to other coins in addition to Bitcoin or Ether or whatever. We don't have the resources to do that, but it turns out we've already built a stablecoin model that would give people access to these other cryptocurrencies. And then we can figure out the usage patterns and then later on go native if people liked those synthetic currencies. We tested this in November by adding synthetic Ether to our app and our numbers went through the roof overnight. People were buying Bitcoin, buying Ether or moving between them, but using this synthetic currency model with no trading interface and they could move Bitcoin in, hedge it instantly as dollars, move the dollars back to Ether, move the Ether to Bitcoin, you know, again, any 50 fiat currencies, et cetera, et cetera. And clearly people loved it. I mean, it was by far the first two weeks of that was by far the biggest explosion in users we had seen. So we said, okay, this is working. We started making plans to launch the 20 currencies that we announced a few weeks ago. And we actually had it working in December and we're ready to launch it. Now, remember what happened in December. The price of Bitcoin, I think it went up to like $19,500 or something like that. And remember where the mining fees were. Now, keep in mind that these multi-sig smart contracts are much bigger than normal Bitcoin transactions. And more expensive, yeah, to do a transaction. And 100% of them are on chain. So we start testing this system and all of a sudden people are moving $5 between Bitcoin and Ether and it's costing me 50. And I'm saying, guys, this is not a good business model. We have a problem here. But the people love the app. So even our internal employees, the day we launched it, the number of transactions that happened per employee blew us away. So we actually went to our employees and said, hey, please stop doing this because you're costing me a fortune in mining fees. And so we did a few things. We optimized. We started batching some of the transactions where we a lot of our transactions simply can't be batched because they're truly peer to peer. A lot of our, our bank based deposits through our exchange partners, we batch now. But even that only got us so far. So when we had a, even like a few weeks ago, when, when the buying fee started creeping up again, we were really happy that we made these changes. So what we did was we actually integrated Litecoin as another native asset class in the system. And this is before launching out of fear of this mining fee issue and, and built a system where we could effectively do atomic swaps between P2SH based and Litecoin based scripts in order to eliminate the mining fee as an issue. So meaning that we could give consumers these scripts either in Litecoin or Bitcoin, and they wouldn't have to know which they were using and the value would be stable. And if for some reason we needed to move between them, we could also do so in the app. <laughs> Let me jump in here. This is a, frankly a great story, Bill. I'm really enjoying hearing your journey because you've done so much, right? Like you've come up against hard problems and actually figured out how to address them or figured out that they weren't really addressable in the current market. And that's so great to hear. Because a lot of times it's easier to talk about the vision. It's easier to talk about sort of the dream. But I really like all this detail. 
So what I'm super curious about is what is Abra's business model, right? Because if you're doing, you're taking the other side of these bets, right? You're, you're hedging that there's a cost to doing all of that, right? And if you're also eating transaction fees, which I was not sure if you were doing, but now after you've said that, it seems like you are covering all transaction fees on behalf of your users. Where does Abra make money from this? Is there a spread in the sale? So basically the way the system works is, is we manage liquidity via our exchange partners. And think of the spot price at any given time as kind of a weighted average of what our own cost is across all of those exchanges in order to facilitate liquidity for the consumer. Now, we generally mark that up, you know, and, and the markup depends upon how liquid the currency is, what our risk is on the hedge, et cetera, et cetera. But there's enough of a spread in there to make Abra a reasonable profit and cover our costs on the hedging and any trading fees that we have because we are integrated with the exchanges and our numbers have been going up dramatically the past few weeks now because we don't treat these like true cfds because cfds are illegal in the us we have to act as the counterparty in the us to 100 percent of these transactions what is a cfd i'm sorry it's a contract for difference it's like a simplified oh yeah. so right. in, in in the uk for example a significant number of investing i should say in bitcoin get investment exposure via cfds because in the uk CFDs are considered gambling and gambling winnings aren't taxable, which is insane, by the way. But but um, those are that's why CFDs are illegal in the U.S. because they let you bet on anything. But what Abra is doing is different. We act as the counterparty to every one of those contracts. So we're actually not brokering CFDs since we're the counterparty. But Abra is exposed to the counterparty risk. Effectively, the consumer is taking a short position and Abra is taking a long position. And like I said, we figured out how to hedge away that that counterparty risk. So I do have a fixed cost per day for that hedge. And that is generally offset by the spread that you alluded to up to a certain number of days. So today, if you leave money in the system from not Bitcoin or Litecoin, but other synthetic currencies in the system for more than a few months, Abra may run a negative margin on that position. We're willing to take that risk right now because most people aren't doing that one. And two, we're learning user behavior then these contracts are two of two multi-sig, which means that Abra and the consumer both have to sign, which creates other problems. We're migrating this to a two of three multi-sig in the summer. At that point, we'll be able to have much more spread and pricing on these contracts. And it'll be a better deal for both Abra and the consumer over time, because people who leave the money in for a very short period of time will probably pay a lower spread effectively than people who leave the money in the system for a much longer period of time. It also basically protects the consumer because we're going to spin out the Oracle into a nonprofit outside of the U.S. So again, just to just to recap what it seems like the app is doing is you have two tokens that your wallet can deal with natively. Uh, and then those tokens can then essentially have their value abstracted and locked into one of 20 different cryptocurrencies, one of 50 different fiat currencies. And so in practice, to pull that money out of the system, you can either pull it out in the form of cryptocurrency or you can pull it out in local currency through one of the tellers within your network, right? So let's take a step back and talk about liquidity and how we leverage the existing business to segue into this business. So in the Philippines, for example, where we were getting traction with the tellers, the retail tellers actually do a pretty good business facilitating buying and selling of crypto via this model. Also money transfer, but, but I'd say it's probably 85% buying and selling crypto. And there's also an overlap, what we discovered between people who are doing both, meaning I'm using Abra at a teller to buy crypto, but I'm also sending money with the same app using the same money that I deposited into the app. Believe it or not, we have people who will put $5 onto the Abra app, move some of that into some of the altcoins that we support in the app now as an investment, meaning they're literally investing $5 at a time. 
but some of it they'll send. Okay. Now in the US, because of the liquidity problems we were having with the tellers, we actually turned the tellers off. It would cost me probably a million dollars a month to have a viable teller network just in the large cities. I mean, if I focused on San Francisco, New York, LA, Chicago, and went super deep, I'd probably be spending a million a month. And so that's just not a viable option for us right now. So in the US, everybody's interacting with the system either via ACH, Bankwire, or American Express card, or Bitcoin, because you can move money in and out in native Bitcoin. And in a couple of days, you'll be able to move money in and out via native Litecoin, and then soon other cryptos as well. And we have a lot of people who move Bitcoin in when they think the price is falling, convert it to the dollar stablecoin, because there's no KYC requirement for doing that, because there is no bank involved in that transaction and it's non-custodial. We're not holding any of your crypto. Let me repeat that. So you can move basically Bitcoin into the Abra wallet and it's just held private key on your phone, but then you can use a sidechain to move that to a multi-sig contract, which effectively then hedges the value of the Bitcoin to the spot price of Bitcoin versus the dollar at the moment you did that. And so when the price was falling in January, we had a ton of people doing this, moving money into Abra to basically get this free hedge and with Abra as the counterparty to those transactions, we actually didn't lose a penny because the hedging system worked perfectly, even with the 50% price drop that we saw in most of these coins. Back to the original story, once we made this fix so that we could address the mining fee issue by both optimizing the Bitcoin fees as well as having Litecoin as a second currency, then in March, we announced and launched the other altcoins in the system. And then this week, we launched a few more. I think we're launching Monero and Verge and a couple of others up to like 25 cryptos and 50 fiat, all using the same synthetic currency stablecoin model that we had originally built for money transfer. And I wouldn't be surprised if by this time next year, we were also dealing with things like synthetic stocks, not so much for Americans, but again, getting back to financial inclusion, people in Africa, people in Philippines using Abra to make investments without actually physically getting the Apple shares, they would just get the synthetic CFD that gives them exposure to those shares using Bitcoin or Litecoin as the smart contract asset class. But this gives you a segue. Now this becomes a much better solution to the original problem. Let's think about this for a second. At the rate we're growing, we could easily have millions of people doing this in the next couple of years, right? We have users in 75 countries now. Turns out this is the best possible solution to the biggest problem we had in offering remittances, which was the cost of customer acquisition. Because what happens in the system is that as we get more and more users, doing money transfer becomes a much more viable proposition because it becomes more likely that people you would want to send money to are either one, willing to get Abra, or two, already have Abra. So in July, for example, we're planning to launch SEPA support, which is wires for people who hold euros in 25 countries. So those people who have Abra can now get a money transfer in Bitcoin from the US, receive the money in euros and take the money out. And it's a completely non-custodial transaction until you actually withdraw the funds. So over time, I think we actually revert back to not only being an investment vehicle, but actually being a payment and money transfer vehicle because of the way we're deploying the investment vehicle on a country by country basis. Today's show is sponsored by EZDNS.com. EZDNS first started sponsoring the Let's Talk Bitcoin show back in 2013, and they fall into the early libertarian adopters camp. In today's world, it doesn't really matter if you're running a blockchain startup or just have an opinion. You want a company who thinks your rights matter at an ideological level. And for my websites, that's EZDNS. 
Oh, and for those of you already living in the future, you can pay your bill with Bitcoin or Ethereum. So when you're thinking domains, mail servers, or DNS provisioning, think EasyDNS.com. Now, back to the show. The problem that you have is that because the initial use case was just remittances and just that sort of money transmission type use case, you don't have any advantages or at least very many advantages in that system versus the ones that are already established in the kind of legacy fashion. So you started going down the path of seeing that users actually were using this not just for safety, but also to kind of make bets on on things and to try and effectively use the application that was intended for remittances as a way to invest in things. And that same system that you created to lock in the stability for people who wanted stability actually is in practice being used as a way to speculate on certain things that you've made available for that stability use case. And so now you're taking that and expanding what was originally built for stability to now make it so that you can tap into more and more different types of investments, which means that instead of being a remittance application anymore and competing against companies that are well-established and already have that market pretty well served, even if it's not great service, now it's a remittance application that's sort of buried within an investment application. And so the reason why people want to use it is because of the investment. But once they're already there, you've solved the user problem too. And as more people use it to invest, which is something of a unique attribute about it relative to other offerings that are out there, then you will acquire that network effect, not just for the investment side, but also for the remittance side, which winds up solving both problems by solving the one. That's right. You nailed it 100%. And then the third step towards the vision of having a what I call crypto bank is credit. I don't know if you noticed that Foxconn invested in Abra last summer. Now, why would the manufacturer of the iPhone be interested in a cryptocurrency company? And they spent a lot of time with Abra. They actually got very deep in the crypto space. It turns out that in addition to manufacturing the iPhone, they're also the largest contract manufacturer in the world. So we've been doing a lot of homework as to how crypto will be used to facilitate credit at large scale, specifically Bitcoin, in the long term. My belief is, is that hardware as a service is going to basically be a trillion dollar business that doesn't exist today, facilitated by Bitcoin. Let me explain what I mean by that. So there is a fast growing business in Africa of companies basically giving away solar lanterns and home electric kits to people who never had electricity before for free, where they make lease payments on the solar kits using their M-Pesa wallet. And if they make the lease payments, the light goes on because it has a built-in cellular uh, IoT capability in the solar lantern. And if they don't make the lease payment, the light doesn't go on. Now, you can imagine that the repayment rate is very, very high and the theft rate is very, very low because one, it's their electricity and they've never had electricity. But that's proven that you can actually build a viable hardware as a service model. The market exists worldwide for those solar lanterns. Why aren't they available all over the world? The number one reason they're not available all over the world is, is because the companies that sell them can't collect the lease payments. Collecting the lease payment via M-Pesa is super tiny, right? If you put that lantern in Indonesia and said, okay, pay me, there would be no way. There would be no way to make money on the transaction given the cost of the payment. Well, Abra just solved that problem. I just explained to you how with our stablecoin, we have solved that problem, right? So now if they embedded Abra into that device, 
using our app, if we were liquid in the countries they were putting it in, they would now be able to ship that lantern into every single country in the world, receive the payment in the home country, and not even know what currency the consumer paid in in the country that they paid in in the first place. Meaning if I was in if I was in Korea, I would receive yuan as Samsung and not even know that the consumer in, in Indonesia paid in rupees. But what about washing machines, dishwashers, televisions, refrigerators, right? If you apply this model to consumer electronics for the 3 billion people that can't afford the retail cost for those devices, you've now created a hardware as a service model that crypto enables that is probably worth a trillion dollars to all of those consumer electronics companies. We have this tenet that there's three business problems that crypto solves in the real world, not just about tech, right? And that's the third of those problems. You put all those together, decentralized investing, which is what we solve with the stablecoin model with the, the crypto and speculation, right? Money transfer and replacement for SWIFT at global scale. And now hardware as a service, you have three business problems that effectively enable a crypto bank with business problems that can't, I believe can't be solved without Bitcoin, at least at global scale. You can solve them in tiny local pockets, but not at the scale that we're talking about. And so you get back to our original vision, you just get there in a very different path than what we had originally believed would happen. And that's okay. <laughs> we're having fun and solving real problems along the way. It just hasn't been a straight line, obviously, to get there. So let's just talk about that for a second, because on the one hand, I'm like, wow, that seems really useful. And on the other hand, I'm like, man, that means more payments for people who probably can't afford them if they can't afford them. Do you see that as something that has the potential to become like problematic? Or do you just see this as I'm just not that familiar with the kind of environments or the types of situations that people are in besides desperately poor, right? Right. And so something like M-Pesa solves the problem of the payment remittance, but it doesn't solve the economic problems that might actually be at the root of these things. Where am I misunderstanding? You have to separate what M-Pesa does from traditional cash remittances, because M-Pesa, even they struggled at the beginning to find a use case. It was when they realized that they had a domestic remittance slash money transfer opportunity, which is very unique to Kenya, by the way. You don't have a lot of domestic workers in most countries. So that was a unique opportunity that they had. And they actually ended up floating the float, if you will, to a lot of their airtime agents to get this to work, which costs Safaricom a lot of money. So put that aside for a second, right? Most remittance recipients are not destitute by definition because they're receiving hundreds of dollars a month from someone else. But that money gets spent every month, meaning it, it creates very little savings. That's a misnomer about traditional cash remittances is that there's discretionary spend there. There really isn't. Maybe 10%, maybe 15% in some places, but but the vast majority of that money gets spent by the time the next remittance transaction arrives. And so that in of itself represents a big challenge in changing consumer behavior. Because if the money is being spent as cash over the first couple of weeks of receiving it, you don't care as a recipient about the value of receiving that money as a stored value product. And you're also an untrusting person to begin with. So I spent a couple of months, a few years ago, traveling village to village, you know, meeting people who receive remittances. And then I'd go to Bakersfield here in California and meet their family. And I'd say, oh, I was in Guadalajara talking to your, your uncle Jose. And they'd look at me like I was crazy. Like, what were you doing there? And by the way, some of these villages in Mexico have no men in them because they're all in Bakersfield working the fields. And so very untrusting. Right. Because at this point, they, they fear for their safety. They're upset that their families are, are 
separated and, and that to deal with all this stuff and they're managing the money on behalf of the whole family. Sometimes you have one patriarch who's managing money on behalf of multiple kind of branches of the family at the same time. So there's a lot of trust issues in there that are caused by this. Now, it's not a destitution problem because they are receiving the money, but it, it is a cash versus stored value problem that I don't think anyone is going to solve on the recipient side of the remittance problem anytime soon. Gotcha. Okay. Thank you for that. All right. I have a couple of technical questions. During the conversation about the uh, multi-sig smart contracts that you're using to kind of balance out uh, and provide these synthetic stable coins in the variety of forms that you're providing them in, you mentioned that there was a, a side chain for this. Generally, always curious when people talk about using side chains because it can mean different things to different people. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So for us, the side chain I, I think I was referring to was the ability to move smart contracts between Bitcoin as the base asset class and Litecoin, which we explicitly developed originally to solve the mining fee issue. But since then has become interesting because Abra is growing in popularity with the Litecoin crowd. And so the ability to give them native Litecoin support was a wonderful side effect. And we'll do that with other crypto over time. But we had developed a technology that could effectively allow us to do atomic swaps between the two. So it's not a side chain in the kind of sophisticated you know, sense that you, you read about in, in the white papers, it's a very simple solution that allows us to move between chains and very specific to our needs. There's a lot of overlap in some of the theories between how Abra works and also how Lightning works. Now, Lightning is it has to work at a massive scale. You know, it, they have interoperability issues. It's very complex. What we're doing is a highly, highly simplified version of multi-sig that addresses exactly our needs. But it's also because we've gone very deep in it, given us a lot of insights as to how Lightning works, for example, and how, how their tech works. I believe, I could be wrong in this, but I believe that Abra has the only consumer-facing multi-sig solution that hides the complexity of all this stuff that's actually getting any consumer traction today. I'm not aware of anybody else doing anything like that. It seems like you've really been very focused on outcomes with this, as opposed to thinking about what's the method to use that solves our problem. At its core, Abra is an application that is using cryptocurrency as infrastructure, right? Used Bitcoin and now is using Bitcoin and Litecoin as infrastructure to do kind of all of these different things. But the kind of underlying technology, how much does that matter? How important is it that you built on Bitcoin first or was it just a factor? Huge. No, no, you, 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 can't, you can't do Abra any other way. So to build Abra, again, the challenge was how do I store money, now it's morphed into any asset on a phone without taking custody of the underlying asset. Meaning how do I store originally dollars on a smartphone without having dollars in a bank vault? And secondly, how do I move those dollars peer to peer between two phones so that the recipient can receive euros, pesos, or even Bitcoin or Litecoin or whatever crypto you want that we support without actually having a true financial intermediary to that transaction? which means that there's no licensed money transmitter, there's no licensed bank, no licensed e-money holder in the middle of that transaction. That was the original problem we're trying to solve. As users in 75 countries with zero licensing, that's important because it would be untenable for Abra to be licensed in all those countries. And, and, and again, that was the problem I was trying to solve vis-a-vis -vis my last company, Boom Financial. And I still think that Bitcoin is the only way at global scale, and, and now Litecoin as well, to solve that problem at global scale, uh, the way we're trying to do it. I think Ether could eventually get there, 
but it's still not far enough along in a lot of ways for us to trust it yet. And I also think that the way we're doing the scripting, the simplicity of Bitcoin and what it can't do is actually very advantageous to us. It makes it way more secure. And as you know, a lot of the problems with Ether have come in the wallet implementations, not necessarily with Ether itself. Bitcoin represents, I believe, the best and only way to do this in the short term, and even in the midterm, probably the most secure way to do this. So what do you see as kind of the path forward in terms of Abra's use of Bitcoin as time goes on? There's the Lightning Network and payment channels and kind of all of these layer two scaling technologies. And it sounds like you guys have gone down that rabbit hole already and basically built not, I wouldn't say simplified versions for yourself, but specific versions for yourself, as opposed to the sort of general application stuff we're seeing people talk about now. Is that the future for this sort of thing? Or does that add additional complexity in, in a lightning type world or some other type of advanced multi-blockchain sort of thing? Yeah, it's a great question. I don't have all the answers. I'll tell you what I want to have happen. Okay. But I can't guarantee that this is what will happen because it's also dependent upon a lot of other people participating in the network. We love the Lightning model. We love the payment channel model. But the holes are what happens when payment channels are closed with a small number of netted transactions so that the, the, the mining fees of $50 are distributed amongst three transactions as opposed to 400 transactions. I haven't heard a good solution to that. And I think that's a boom in developing markets, which are going to be less liquid than in the US. I'm concerned about that. That having been said, I think that ironically, banks may have a role in solving that problem because they can provide liquidity to the system. Then they may not understand what we're talking about right now, and they probably wouldn't, but eventually they will. But the tech is sound, right? We've analyzed how it works. We've analyzed how the payment channels work. We've analyzed how the settlements and net settlements work and how the financials work by basically amortizing these across multiple transactions. And it all makes sense. It's, it's a cryptographically immutable way to move money peer to peer off chain. We agree. We like it. We believe in it. But from a business perspective, these issues are real. And so we are moving forward with what we have to do in the short term to be in business and make money and, and survive and to hopefully be stewards of the community that participates in defining the solutions to those problems over time. But I don't have all the answers yet. I just know that the promise is there and somebody has to solve these problems in order for second layer technologies to work in the real world. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. This episode was sponsored by EasyDNS.com. Content for today's show comes to us from Stephanie, Bill, and Adam. This episode featured music by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz, with editing by Matthew Zipkin. See you next time.